Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Hi, and welcome to part seven of a very long series, my longest series so far, but it's important, I think, to uh, spend some time on this. Uh, we're talking about uh, the U.S. Department of Justice Criminal Division's Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs Memo, updated memo, uh, of April 2019. Um, we have completed discussion of the first part, and a lot of really, I think, valuable information uh, in that first part. So if you haven't listened to the first few parts of the uh, uh, podcast over the last three weeks, I guess, that I've been going through this, I, I encourage you to go back and take a look, uh, or listen, rather. Um, but uh, uh, do come back and join us once you've uh, listened to our discussion of part one. We're going to jump into part two. And as we discussed uh, in the introductory episode about this revised document, uh, there are three sections, three queries uh, that actually come right out of the FCPA uh, guidance back from 2012 that the department and the SEC put together. Um, and the second query uh, is looking into the effectiveness of the code. The, the query itself, uh, the heading for part two is, is the corporation's compliance program being implemented effectively? Uh, a little historical context here. Um, many of you have heard the term paper program, and interestingly enough, the uh, department actually uses the term uh, with quotation marks around it, paper program, in the discussion here. Uh, this goes back at least to uh, one example that I've heard most often, and it might be partly because I came up uh, through Houston and, and, and was in private practice in Houston, is they often people will point to Enron as having a quote-unquote quote paper program. Uh, they had the uh, excellent code of conduct that no one paid attention to. They had training. They had uh, compliance officers and uh, uh, a lot of uh, good messaging uh, that came from their management uh, in certain occasions. But there was a lot of other messaging <laughs> that came from management. Um, so we've had this term over the last few years of paper program, and it, it has that kind of historical context where uh, the department – wants to make sure that an organization just doesn't have window dressing, just doesn't put together uh, some materials, a code of conduct, some training, uh, designate someone as the compliance officer or responsible for compli com compliance, and then have them uh, uh, really not implement uh, a program or uh, have other competing interests that uh, make uh, any kind of compliance program ineffective. Uh, so the kind of two concepts here are, number one, that you actually uh, make reasonable efforts to put together a program and that there not be, uh, that the commitment be there, that the, that the compliance program, that ethical culture, that doing the right thing, for lack of a better term, uh, takes precedence over any kind of business uh, expectations or business concerns. Uh, that That's really it. Um, there's uh, a lot of discussion uh, about what a paper program is or isn't and what makes an effective program. And we talked a lot about that actually in the first few uh, episodes of this series, specifically around things like training uh, and written standards and, and monitoring and auditing. 
for example. But, but this really is a broad question about commitment, about whether the company actually has resources and whether those resources are effective and not being counteracted by uh, uh, business pressures or, or, or other agendas, if you will. So uh, the preliminary, preliminary uh, paragraph here uh, quotes the uh, U.S. Attorney's Manual and uh, talks about paper programs, and, but to also talks about resources, talks about whether an organization has a, a staff that is, quote, sufficient to audit, document, analyze, and utilize the results of the corporation's compliance efforts. Uh, so they talk, you know, specifically here about a couple of concepts. Uh, analyze, that means that you're collecting data of some sort, presumably, uh, doing some sort of risk assessment, presumably. A document, uh, so that's going to be uh, written standards, training, and other, and documenting the processes of the of the program itself. Audit, that means that there's going to be a look at the program, and we'll talk more about this. And we talked about uh, risk assessment uh, last week, but uh, we'll talk more about um, uh, auditing or or assessing the compliance program itself, the controls themselves. This is something that is apart from any kind of risk assessment process that goes on. You have to do a risk assessment process, whether that's part of your overall ERM process at your organization or whether it's specific to compliance, to determine uh, the risks that you face and their severity and likelihood uh, and, and, how, and help you uh, determine how you're going to resource to try to counteract that. But this is something different, I think, when they're talking about audit. Uh, this is about looking at the controls, looking at the program itself, and making a determination uh, about the effectiveness of the program. And remember, what we're talking about here is, is the program implemented effectively? Well, how are you going to know that? Well, uh, you know, nothing's happened. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that <laughs> the program is effective. That just means that either A, nothing's happened, or B, more likely, you don't know about what's happened. Um, well, uh, you know, I, you, we do all of these things. We train, we have a code, we have policies. We've, I can show where uh, these have been, been uh, put out into the field and people have signed off on them or people have, have taken training. Yeah, but does that really measure effectiveness? So uh, oh, we're going to talk more about this uh, not only today but, but in future podcasts. But uh, this is a, you know, this kind of assessment, this kind of look back, this kind of audit uh, looking specifically at your uh, program itself and how it's effective is something that a lot of organizations really don't do. And those that do, uh, the data, and in the data that I, I am aware of is a few years old now, so this may have changed, but historically, this is something that um, if there's any kind of audit or review or assessment of the compliance program or, or pieces of the puzzle, function functions of the compliance program, it's done almost universally, at least historically, it's been done internally at the organization. Maybe the audit department, you know, use, they use the term audit here, so that leads you to think maybe, you know, it's the internal auditor uh, that's taking a look, and, and that's often the case in many organizations. Uh, but um, we may not get to it today because we have other topics to cover here in this section, uh, but, but um, I think things are changing, and there's although it's not explicit in guidance from the Department of Justice or, or otherwise that you must go to a third party except in certain circumstances. And in, in sentencing guidelines, there, there are certain circumstances where you should uh, engage uh, third parties. 
I think that the best practices are changing and that there's an expectation that an organization that, you know, uh, relies on external audit uh, to look at their financials, uh, you know, why don't you rely periodically on external resources to take a look at your compliance program and whether it's effective or not. So that's just something to plan in your ear there uh, when you're reading uh, terms like audit. Uh, the second point that they make in this preamble paragraph, and this is all on page nine of the memo, by the way, uh, is that uh, prosecutors should also determine whether the corporation's employees are adequately informed about the compliance program and convinced of the commitment to it. So number one, you have to reach your employees and your other stakeholders with training and uh, uh, your written standards, your code of conduct. So you have to make sure that you're, you're actually getting to them, that, that the program is accessible to the population that you need to serve, and that they are convinced, that's a pretty strong word, of the corporation's commitment to that said program. Well, I think traditionally the, the convincing came from um, statements from the CEO and uh, senior management of the organization. There's some discussion in here, uh, some specific queries that, that reinforce that notion. But also, but also, how do you convince people of commitment to a certain standard if you are operating an organization that has more than, say, a couple hundred people uh, where uh, the CEO or the senior management of the organization doesn't have that direct uh, and, and uh, uh, intimate contact with everybody in the organization on a regular basis? Well, you rely on the managers who are managing those people out in the field. You rely on middle management. And what's interesting about this, and this is not a change from the memo in 2017 necessarily, uh, but it is uh, a, a change from, I think, expectations that organizations had prior uh, to these memos coming out. Uh, you know, a, working on getting middle management involved in compliance has been a nice-to-have <laughs> or an aspirational thing for organizations over the last five to ten years, depending on how mature your organization is. It's no longer that. Getting middle management involved, making sure that they have the resources and the training necessary to be part of your compliance program in a meaningful and objective way is a need to have. It is necessary. How, how else are you going to convince the broad population of your organization about the commitment to compliance and ethical culture? You have to be able to reach them in the most effective way. And the most effective way to convince somebody in your organization is to have their manager doing the, doing the convincing. They're, they're the ones that are responsible for convincing them to meet all of their other objectives and, uh, and, and work within all the other uh, uh, boundaries and, and, and uh, requirements that you have as an organization. They are also uh, responsible for making sure that compliance is working effectively and implement it effectively. So uh, part A uh, talks about this commitment. Uh, it says commitment by senior and middle management, not commitment of, but commitment by. It's, it's active. There, there's an expectation that there's a commitment that is uh, authored by senior and middle management in your organization. Uh, that a culture of 
of ethics and compliance with the law is integral and that high, there has to be a high-level commitment by company leadership. I don't think this is necessarily new. We've all t known about tone from the top for a long time. There's an expectation that, or, that uh, the CEO and other senior managers in the organization are going to uh, be very uh, clear about these expectations. The only thing I would say here is I think um, uh, if your senior management commitment uh, starts and stops with the CEO um, or, or a, a, only a few or handful of the uh, senior managers of, uh, or, or senior executives at your organization, that's not good. And that's not, uh, I wouldn't think, uh, effective or, or likely to be as effective as if you have the broad group of managers involved in this process. And to give you an, a concrete example here, I work with a client uh, that uh, on an annual basis puts together um, some activities, uh, you know, pretty, pretty significant amount of activities and resources around their compliance week. Uh, one of the things that they do is every day of compliance week, all five days of, of their compliance week, they have multiple senior managers that deliver messages throughout those different days on different topics. They get a lot of different faces out. Uh, and a lot of different voices um, uh, d discussing these, not just, you know, compliance is important and we all ought to do the right thing and ethical culture is important, but talking specifically about uh, topics like harassment, uh, conflicts of interest, whatever the topic of the day is. Uh, you, you need to have a diversity of communication from senior management, and it can't just be the CEO and the chairman of the board and you uh, as the person responsible for compliance at your organization. It has to be a broader group. And it'd be nice if it wasn't just during compliance week or, or special messaging, but that, that was something that was consistent uh, and expected on a regular basis from those managers. And that's going to be um, HR, that's going to be audit, that's going to be finance, that's going to be um, uh, health, safety, and environment, that's going to be operational managers, uh, sales, marketing, uh, everybody involved in, in, in the uh, operations of your organization should be involved in uh, the operationalization of compliance and the communication around compliance. So make sure uh, that you have that, um, uh, uh, that uh, diversity of, of, of uh, communication. The other thing that's interesting is uh, both the sentencing guidelines and here in this guidance from the Department of Justice, they call out specifically the board of directors for setting that tone. It is still pretty rare uh, to uh, see um, the chair of the audit committee of the board of directors or the chair chairman of the uh, board of directors speaking directly on compliance issues. Some organizations do that. Uh, I, again, had a client, just to give you a specific example, uh, who, who's chairman of the board is a regional, actually fairly sizable regional bank uh, organization. And uh, the chairman of the board not only had a letter that was along with the CEO's letter, and they were not the same person. Sometimes the CEO and the chairman are the same, but they were different people here. Uh, the CEO and the chairman each had an individual letter in the code of conduct that was updated on a regular basis. But the, but the, chair, the chair, chairperson of the board also went out and spoke at Compliance Week, spoke at other events, and talked about ethics on a regular basis, and actually went to uh, 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 industry events and was on panels talking about the importance of uh, proselytizing about the importance of compliance and ethics. 
that's the kind of engagement you don't normally see from the board of directors. But uh, it's important to note that both the sentencing stand sentencing commission um, guidelines around uh, what effective program looks like and this guidance uh, from the Department of Justice call out uh, the tone from the board of directors as well. And then uh, it turns to middle management and make sure and, and it says that you must ensure and in turn have uh, middle management that's going to reinforce uh, standards and encourage employees to abide by them. This is very active again. It's ex expecting an active involvement from middle management. Now, I don't define exactly what middle management might be here, um, but I think that uh, if you are going to, if you have managers who are responsible for other priorities for uh, different parts of your workforce um, that are setting goals, that are uh, measuring against those goals, then I think that those managers also have to be involved in the process of uh, communicating the compliance program and being uh, involved in the process. Um, so our queries uh, here uh, under part A of number of uh, section two of the memo, and this goes on page from page nine to page 10, and this is gonna be the last part that we'll talk about today, are uh, the queries as are carried over primarily from the last um, memo, memo from 2017 but, but however, I, the, the, the difference here with the queries is there's more focus on uh, the topic I mentioned at the top of this conversation, which is business pressure or business, um, business goals, uh, somehow uh, uh, making uh, your, your program a paper program, uh, making your program a program that can't be effectively implemented because of the competing pressures. Uh, that is really amplified in the queries here that we're going to talk about. First query is uh, uh, conduct at the top, and it asks whether senior leaders through words and actions have encouraged or discouraged compliance, including the type of misconduct involved in the current investigation. What concrete actions have they taken? Again, very active. What concrete actions? What objectively can you show that the senior management of your organization, the board of directors, uh, the CEO and all the other operational manager, uh, senior executives. What have they done? What, what have they, what concrete actions, what objective criteria can you show uh, around their involvement in, in um, uh, uh, encouraging compliance and making your program effective? Um, how have they modeled proper behavior to a subordinates? Well, you know, I guess they haven't engaged in misconduct. That would be a good start. Uh, have managers tolerated greater compliance risks in pursuit of new business or greater revenues? Have managers encouraged employees to act unethically to achieve a business objective or impeded compliance personnel from effectively implementing their duties? Well, that's pretty specific. You know, uh, this goes to the kind of conduct that we saw, for example, at Wells Fargo where the business objectives were clearly, clearly, clearly going to come into conflict with uh, compliance and ethical considerations uh, right down at the branch level. These pressures were, uh, and the goals that were set were inconsistent with what uh, Wells Fargo was saying at the top echelons of its organization was important to them. The second query is shared commitment. What actions, uh, you can't get more active than actions, 
What actions have senior leaders and middle management uh, stakeholders, e.g. E business and operational managers? So if it wasn't already clear that this was more than just legal and compliance, they're saying operational managers. Finance, procurement, legal, human resources taken to demonstrate their commitment to compliance, compliance personnel, including their remediation efforts. Have they persisted in that commitment in the face of competing interests or business objectives? Again, this is sort of reamplifying the point we just made about competing interests. So uh, what, are, what are those leaders we talked about a minute ago that need to be involved in the process, uh, those operational leaders? What have they done? Uh, and can you sh show in those circumstances where there are competing interests that they make the right call and that we all agree what the right call should be? The last query under this first section is uh, titled Oversight. What compliance expertise has been available on the Board of Directors and have the Board of Directors and or external auditors held executive or private sessions with the compliance and control function? What, times of inf what types of information have the board of directors and senior management examined in their exercise of exercise of oversight in the area of which where the misconduct that's being investigated occurred again uh, as i mentioned in one of the earlier podcasts you have to look at all of this guidance through the prism of uh, criminal behavior and criminal investigation but as standards uh you know when we're talking about oversight and this is similar uh to the queries that were in the 2017 memo and back then, I pointed out how interesting it was that there is now a query, and this is not new, this is not from April, this is from two years ago, February in 2017, three years ago now, almost, uh, that uh, the query is going to be made about compliance expertise available on the board of directors. So when it says, what compliance expertise has been available on the board of directors, I, I talked about this before when I was discussing the prior memo. I think this is either A, um, if you want to you know, be very direct about it, having uh, a uh, chair of your audit committee or, m or members of your audit committee or whichever subdivision is responsible for oversight of compliance uh, that have uh, past compliance experience, past compliance and ethics program experience. Or... Um, by saying what's available, uh, at least making sure that that expertise is available uh, on a regular basis to the board. And that might be you uh, as the compliance officer or person responsible for compliance, or it might be outside advisors, it might be a compliance committee, uh, but, but you know, compliance expertise is pretty explicit and it being available to the board of directors is also pretty explicit so that they can conduct proper oversight. Um, uh, talks about executive or private sessions. Um, this has already been in the sentencing guidelines for a while that the, that the person or persons responsible for the day-to-day -day operation of the program have to have access to the board of directors uh, at least, at least uh, the floor in the sentencing guidelines is um, uh, when there's criminal conduct or perceived criminal conduct or on an annual basis to update on the status of the program. Um, most organizations, best practices is much more frequently than that. There's no timetable uh, given here in the DOJ memo, but uh, most organizations, uh, if you look at the survey data, have that sort of touch point with the, uh, the uh, audit committee of the board or the full board on a quarterly basis. Uh, some organizations do it more frequently than that, but that's kind of the gold standard. 
Uh, but certainly, if you're not having that at all, you don't comport with this guidance from the Department of Justice, and you do not comport with the organizational sentencing guidelines, which require that at least on an annual basis to update on the status of the program. Uh, and then the last query here is what types of information uh, have they, uh, the board of directors and management examined uh, when, they're over, when they're exercising their oversight responsibility? Uh, so that's going to look into the material that is regularly provided at those quarterly meetings. Um, is it simply, a, you know, a broad, tr you know, a description of what, uh, who's been trained on what, you know, and, and training completion rates, uh, and a broad discussion about uh, incidents and, and uh, um, uh, uh, investigation uh, status. I mean, that's kind of traditionally what was given five or ten years ago. But now there's an expectation there's going to be a lot more uh, material provided. And that's going to be both uh, broad uh, risk training on the compliance risks and uh, specific risks that your organization faces. Uh, it's also going to be discussing initiatives that are ongoing so that the board has knowledge of the ongoing program and what's being done. That's going to be sharing training and training the board. We talked about training uh, last week. Uh, training the board is part of your training process, or it should be. Uh, so there's a lot here, not just sort of the traditional short report uh, that, uh, you know, the, the, the quick dashboard that the, the board used to get. Uh, a lot more metrics are available now uh, in many organizations around compliance uh, that, that are reported up to the board of directors as well. So uh, that's part A of part two of the memo, where, again, I'm, I know uh, this is taking a while to slog through, but I think it's worthwhile to really go through and, and talk about these uh, differences where, they, where there are some differences. And the amplifications, like, for instance, this last one about uh, 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 focus on the board, which has been around for a couple of years now, but I still see a lot of organizations that fail to do that. Um, I think it's really valuable and, and helpful. As I mentioned before uh, in the last few podcasts, uh, Ryan McConnell's uh, team has put together a great comparison memo. Uh, I'll have uh, that link will remain in the show notes as we go through the rest of this series. We have some webinars that are upcoming with our friends at the Clear Law Institute. Uh, I don't think that the registration page is quite up yet for the first one, which is going to be on June 19th, which is a Wednesday at uh, 1 p.m., uh, or sorry, rather 3 p.m. Uh, uh, Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central. Uh, it's entitled An Effective Compliance and Ethics Program, Practical Considerations and Regulator Expectations. You can expect, uh, given that title and discussion of regulator expectations, I'll be talking about this new memo, but also be talking about uh, broadly what goes into an effective compliance and ethics program. So if you enjoy this detail, but you either you or, or someone you know on your team or someone else uh, needs a hour-long uh, quick dive into the deep end of what uh, makes an effective program and what these practical considerations and regulator, regulator expectations are, uh, watch this space. I will have uh, the registration information in the show notes probably for the next podcast, which I believe will go up uh, uh, Monday or Tuesday of next week, so the beginning of June. So at the beginning of June, start uh, looking at the show notes on the podcast 
and signing up for that uh, webinar, if you will. Uh, I have a, a few, uh, three or four other um, webinars that we're getting ready to schedule with ClearLaw, and once they're um, I have more uh, information, including registration information. I will put that here uh, and direct you there. Uh, as always, please, please, please do provide any uh, feedback that you have about the podcast. Uh, if you've got questions, if you've got suggestions for future topics, once we finally finish uh, going through our, our, our memo here, uh, please let me know. Uh, you can reach us at uh, compliancebeat.com, uh, moreheadconsulting.com, or you can always email me directly at eric at moreheadconsulting.com. I always uh, like to hear from the listeners. Uh, so until we hit part eight, uh, probably the beginning of next week, thank you very much, and we will see you soon. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moreheadconsulting.com.